Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A terrorist murder of a young woman took place in Moscow last night. Two scarcely concealed glee amongst the Western commentariat. Absolute silence from the Western political leaders and unadorned, unrestrained singing and dancing from the partisans of the Ukrainian nationalist movement around the world. Many of them otherwise describing themselves as liberals, even progressives, one or two, even socialists. But they are rejoicing in the evisceration, the tearing to pieces of a young woman killed in a car bomb attack in the Russian capital of Moscow, for reasons which I'll now go into. But let me just opine on the wicked, evil double standards of Western correspondents commentators and politicians when it comes to terrorism. If the Palestinians had blown up the daughter of an Israeli journalist, if the Iranians had blown up the child of a Western politician or an Israeli politician, if Irish dissident terrorists had blown up the daughter of a British political figure from the long and bloodied history, for, for example, of Britain in Ireland, the entire Western media and commentariat would be up in arms. Retaliation would already be underway. Instead, there is a scarcely concealed and not even very enigmatic smile on the face of Western people and way too many of the Western public at the destruction of the young life of Yugina, of the daughter of the Russian nationalist commentator, philosopher, they call him, and television mogul at one time, Alexander Yugin. I'll come to him in a minute because there are some important things you need to know about him. But ponder this. The Western liberal is still in a scarcely simmering spasm of outrage at the attempted murder, not of Salman Rushdie's son or daughter, but of Salman Rushdie himself. Everyone, including me, utterly condemned it, demanded that action be taken, that further marginalization, of Iran, for example, must be the result of an individual's attempt to murder Salman Rushdie on a New York stage just a couple of weeks ago, indeed less than that. The spasm 
had scarcely died down when an actual murder, not of Eugen, but of Eugen's daughter, took place last night to, as I've said, almost unalloyed glee. This is an important lesson that will not have been lost in Russia or in the world. This vividly demonstrates the utter, cynical, immoral, wicked, evil hypocrisy of the West when it comes to the spilling of blood. It is a sick piece of hypocrisy to denounce the attack on Rushdie and welcome the attack on the daughter of Alexander Yukin. And it will not have been missed by those now plotting their revenge. Even if you leave aside the morality of taking pleasure in the murder of a young girl because of the perceived sins of her father, what about the self-interest? Because let me break some bad news to some bad people. This murder will be avenged, and it will be avenged on the equally innocent children of some of you. It will be avenged on the equally innocent daughters and sons of Western politicians, Western philosophers, Western journalists and commentators. Are there no rules left anymore? Have they no decency at all left within them? Or perhaps, as Mr. Gandhi pointed out when asked what he thought of Western civilization, his reply, yes, that would be a good idea, was always the apt and the apposite response. Because this mother of Eugenia is not the only sign that the war in Ukraine just took a dramatic turn for the worst. Russian soldiers, by the score, are being rushed to hospital with what appears to be biological or chemical poisoning. Laughingly, the Ukrainian authorities suggested that they had all eaten a bad curry or words to that effect. But they know, and you know, that that's not really true. The soldiers concerned did not all eat the same food. They were spread out across very many miles of the front on which they were fighting, and they have all gone down with exactly the same symptoms of chemical and biological weapons. Now, for context, you need to recall something that happened in the ancient history of just a few weeks ago, when on entering Ukraine, it was discovered that the United States had set up a chain of biomedical, they say bioweapon installations, institutions, right on the border with Russia in an absolutely grotesque and bizarre turn of events, it turned out that those biolabs were funded by Hunter Biden, the son 
of the President of the United States of America, now in a state of war in the very same Ukraine with the very same Russia. The revelation by Russian media was treated by the usual suspects on the left amongst the progressives and the liberals and the guardians and the New York Times as hyperbole until Victoria Newland herself confirmed the existence of these biolabs, 20 of them, seeded throughout Ukrainian territory on the border with Russia in a country that's been being built up for the last eight years, longer actually, but eight years in fifth gear as the vehicle of confrontation of choice between NATO and the Russian Federation. So we've got biolabs, we've got alleged botulism, and we've now got scores of Russian victims of chemical and biological weapons. As I said on the last item about the daughter of Yugen, forget about the morality of that. Forget the wicked, evil people involved in doing that. Forget their wickedness and their evil. What about the self-interest? Because this too will be retaliated against. If the Ukraine with American involvement is using chemical and biological weapons against Russia, Russia will use chemical and biological weapons against us, against Ukrainian forces and against mercenaries from NATO countries and yes, against NATO personnel, installations, embassies, institutes of all kinds seeded throughout the western part of Ukraine. Are there no rules anymore? Are there no laws anymore? Have they no decency? I ask for a second time. And thirdly, and most portentously of all, despite the idiots, few of them are idiots, most of them are rats in the mainstream media, continuing to report as if by mistake that Russia is shelling a nuclear power plant which it has actually occupied with its own forces for the last three months. Yet still they report that Russia is shelling a nuclear power plant it controls and occupies. It is becoming clear that the Ukraine intends to shell that nuclear power plant and deliberately create a devastating environmental, human, medical, social catastrophe. A Chernobyl, a new Chernobyl in the heart of Europe, carried out by a regime and its forces owned bought, paid for, armed, proselytized for by us. We are therefore going to be this coming week 
responsible for a nuclear catastrophe. And we learn from Big Toby, well-named Elwood, the conservative MP today, that any leak of radiation from that power plant will be treated as an Article 5 of the NATO Charter offence and create a state of war between the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the Russian Federation. An open invitation to Zelensky and his gang to deliberately create that radiation leak, knowing now that the chairman of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee has said that any such radiation leak will bring NATO officially, formally, and wholeheartedly into the war. Forget about the rules for a minute. Forget about the laws for a minute. Forget about the morality for a minute. Is there no understanding of what the consequences of this will be? That an all-out war between NATO and Russia means an all-out war between you and Russia. And Russia and you. Don't imagine for one single minute that that would be a one-sided war. Don't imagine for a single minute that Russia and its allies will not retaliate all guns blazing and, if necessary, nuclear guns blazing. Have they no sense, never mind decency? Have they no idea the precipice on which we currently stand? Well, the politicians do as it happens. The military top brass do as it happens, but the public do not. And unless you're watching this show, you don't know any of what I have just said to you. And whilst a million people watch this show, that means billions do not. It means that by closing down all alternative voices that they could, by shutting television stations, closing newspapers, putting people out of business, defunding them, deplatforming them, shadow banning them, that the vast majority of the public know nothing of which I have just spoken and to which you have just listened. And here's something else they don't know. It is repeated ad nauseum. I've read it a hundred times, to, maybe 500 times today, that the aforementioned Alexander Dugin is Putin's brain, is Putin's philosopher, is the man operating Vladimir Putin and that therefore the murder of his daughter is somehow justified because of your obsession 
with Putin. I'm going to break you some news. There virtually nobody in the West knows. Dugin has never met or spoken to Putin ever in his life. I have met and spoken to Vladimir Putin far more often, meaning twice, than Alexander Dugin, never mind his daughter, now deceased. May she rest in peace. The lie machine never stops. Lies by omission. You just don't get told the truth. Lies by commission. By the deliberate inflation of the role of Dugin so that you can justify his murder or, as it's turned out, the murder of his daughter. So, I hate to say this, as a father myself and as an absolute opponent of terrorism, any terrorism, all terrorism, all places, any time, you better lock up your sons and your daughters. Because the revenge for Dugina will be swift and will be terrible. I only have time to mention in passing something else that you're not being told. Imran Khan, the legitimate Prime Minister of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, is now in grave danger. His liberty and even his life is in danger. Why? Because having been brought down in a U.S. regime change operation, an imported government of wanted criminals placed in his stead in power in Pakistan. He has refused to go quietly into that good night. His supporters have teamed in their tens of millions onto the streets of Pakistan and demanded his reinstatement through immediate free and fair general elections, which everybody knows he would win in a landslide. Dr. Shabazz Gill, a professor from the University of Illinois, Illinois in the United States, and the right-hand man of Imran Khan, is currently being tortured in a Pakistani dungeon. He's on a stretcher, being tortured for being the right-hand man of Imran Khan. And reports are circulating this very evening that the rightful and legitimate Prime Minister of Pakistan is facing imminent arrest. Now, I have lived through this movie before, several times, in fact, in my long involvement with Pakistan going back to the 1970s and the judicial murder of the martyr Zofikar Ali Bhutto on the gallows 
of the Western-supported dictator General Zia al-Haq. I saw what they did to Mr. Bhutto. I campaigned for his life. It broke my heart when he dangled like strange fruit at the end of a rope erected by the hangman Zia al-Haq. I received his daughter straight from prison, Benazir Bhutto, on her arrival in London. I was at her side for the next 30 years and I watched live on television the same Pakistani cesspit of military and intelligence and extremist fanatic nexus murder her. I'm not going to watch the murder of Imran Khan quietly. I now have a big microphone, a big pulpit, and I warn those involved in the attempt to murder democracy in Pakistan, I'm watching and I will call you out. Let me just tell you that we have a poll running on my Twitter, on my Telegram, and on my YouTube channel, which is going great guns. Thousands of people have already voted. It asks the basic question, are we heading for a general strike? And overwhelmingly, on all three platforms, people think that we are. We'll talk about the cost of living crisis and the working people's response to it, amongst other things with the coolest of commentators from the United States, the one and only Garland Nixon. Garland, welcome back uh, to the show. Before we turn to the domestic political scene, and all politics is local in the end, uh, I see we've got matching tartan ties on. It's uh, wonderful to see it. Um, the international situation, could scarcely be more grave this evening. Reports of chemical or biological attack, maybe both, by Ukrainian forces on Russian forces in the Ukraine, the apparently imminent danger of a full military assault by the Ukrainian military on a nuclear power plant, the announcement that any radiation leak from that plant would be treated as an Article 5 trigger by the NATO countries, bringing NATO into the war. Uh, the terrorist murder uh, of a prominent Russian journalist and commentator's daughter in Moscow, it suddenly grew very dark, didn't it, Garland? Yes, and I think... I think we could have predicted that this would be a very difficult August and September simply because it's getting very obvious at this point that um, the Ukraine um, military operation is uh, kind of reaching a crescendo in uh, the Donbass area that very shortly, probably within weeks, um, there will be, it will be clear that uh, this thing is over in the Donbass area, that the Russians have taken the major 
part of Ukraine, that they have, you know, effectively broken the Ukrainian military, which creates a level of desperation, for, particularly with the, with the Ukrainian um, leadership. Also, the um, incidents that recently happened and the rise of tensions in um, the Pacific, I think, also create an air of desperation in the Ukrainian leadership, feeling that, you know, the tension there may cause the focus to leave Ukraine. So I think it could be, be predicted that in this time period we're in, within this month, the month and a half time period, and time period leading up to the midterms, there'll be a tremendous amount of de desperation and there will be event after event um, that uh, is an attempt to try to, um, you know, move the needle one way or the other. I, I, I will end by saying this. I do believe, based on what I saw in the way that the um, Chinese responded to the Pelosi incident, that Russia and China both are going to be cool and level-headed, aren't going to take the bait and be drawn into any major conflicts. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens from the other sides. Now, uh, the uh, Samson option is an obvious one for Zelensky and his uh, gang in Kiev. They came to power as the result of uh, a bloody coup in fire and shot and hail. Uh, they must expect uh, to go out of power in a similar way. Bringing down the temple on top of themselves uh, is an obvious temptation for them. What I'm struggling to understand is why the Western countries who bankroll and arm this whole thing and who have been behind this whole thing would be quite so sanguine about the breaking out of chemical, biological and nuclear warfare in the heart of Europe. Do you know why? Yeah, I'll give you two, th two reasons. Number one, the United States could care less if every single person in Europe died. I mean, let's be honest, they're kind of moving in that direction when it comes to economic issues anyway. So they are in the same way that the U.S. empire, that the Biden administration is sacrificing the Ukrainians as cannon fodder. They would be just as comfortable sacrificing the rest of Europe. So they could care less if some kind of a nuclear disaster happens in Europe. They, that's just something for them to be able to spin. And if a lot of Europeans die, then they'll be able to spin it even more. As far as the European leaders are concerned, it's obvious that there is no independence. One of the things that the Ukrainian um, military operation has demonstrated to the world is that the um, the European countries have no independence, that they are, their leaders are nothing but puppets for the U.S. And if the U.S. says to them, sacrifice your economies, they're willing to do it. If the U.S. says to them, sacrifice your people through a nuclear uh, you know, uh, disaster like this, the answer is yes. They are, they are cannon fodder, and the U.S. empire will use them as cannon fodder. And great, we're, we're all the way over here. We don't get into the nuclear fallout. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll spin it in the, uh, in the newspapers and, and um, sacrifice as many Europeans as necessary for this neocon project. It's a, it's a cynical way to view the, the, the world, but it seems to be uh, pretty appropriate. Well, I've got a, a little bit of news for you and a lot of news for those European puppet leaders. I have been in most of Europe uh, over the last uh, two to three months. Uh, in southern Europe, in France actually, and then south, you will not find a single Ukrainian flag or symbol or emblem on any house 
any business, any street, carried by any person. In fact, there is bitter anger in Central and Southern Europe at the perception. It's not entirely 100% accurate because these problems were coming down the pipeline long before the Ukraine happened. But the perception that their economies are being ruined by their government's response at Biden's behest to the events in the Ukraine. In every shop, cafe, restaurant, petrol station queue, every football crowd that I sat amongst in the preseason friendlies I watched, everywhere people are absolutely furious about this place that the leaders of their countries have put them in. And in Germany, where admittedly there will be more Ukrainian flags, like in the Netherlands, like even still in Britain, though declining fast, 62% of the German people want the resignation of the Chancellor Schultz, little soldier Schultz, has the support of fewer than 25% of his people. 25. Joe Biden, not that much more in the US. We don't even have a prime minister ourselves at this moment. Macron has lost his majority. Draghi is out in Italy. The government of Bulgaria has already fallen. You see my point that the US maybe should not take for granted the ongoing quiescence of public opinion in Europe. And there may be other political heads to fall. Yes. And again, I, you know, I will use, uh, you know, those examples, great examples to go back to the response of Russia and China. It seems to me that out of desperation, the U.S. empire recognizes that this thing's falling apart. This project's falling apart. And in particular, the people of Europe are waking up to the reality that they have no independence and no sovereignty and that they never did. And they're going to be very, very angry, particularly going into next winter. And I believe that um, these, you know, the kinds of provocations we're seeing now are over the top. The Pelosi visit, the Zafarajia nuclear power plant, etc. And I think the Russian and the Chinese leaders realize that time is on their side and that all they have to do is sit back, not respond to the provocations, not, you know, attack some NATO or American target that will, you know, that could cause the um, the Europeans or the Americans to get behind their government and say we have to respond, to sit back and allow you know, as the Iranians say, thank God for making my enemies fools, allow these fools um, to take this thing in the natural direction that it, that they will take it. They have um, pretty much wiped out the illusion of democracy, particularly what's going on here with, you know, former President Trump. And and that's why I said, I think this, this thing's falling apart and the Russians are going to sit and the Chinese are going to allow it to happen. They're going to hold their, they're going to keep their powder dry, um, in spite of what I think will be repeated provocations. And of course, I think the European people, there's going to be no way to stop this tide, this kind of revolutionary tide that will push back against neoliberalism. Well, speaking of fools, uh, we have uh, seen the back of uh, the wisest fool in Christendom, Boris Johnson. Uh, he'll be replaced with uh, an equally foolish, indeed, I'm sorry to put it this way, as bluntly as this, a stupid woman uh, by the name of Liz Truss. 
we, she, she's Boris Johnson without the laughs, without any class, without the Latin. She is going to be a major step down, intellectually speaking, from Boris Johnson. You've got Joe Biden that you wouldn't send out to buy a loaf. And his only real challenger is Donald Trump. Uh, how's that going? They're deliberately trying to criminalize Trump precisely because they know that he would defeat Joe Biden and Kamala Harris even more convincingly, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And what's going on here is they are desperate to um, recognizing that the Democratic Party and that the neoliberal leadership in the United States has so um, decoupled from the American people that they can't possibly get any support politically, electorally. Instead, they've decided to go in the other direction and try to take Trump down. But let's keep in mind something about, um, about elections, particularly presidential elections. The Constitution is the, it sets the sole standards for who can run and who can't, who can't run. In 1920, I believe it was Eugene Debs who was imprisoned for um, you know pushing back against um, against World War One. But at any rate, he ran for president from prison. So the idea that they can charge you know they're looking for anything that they can charge Trump with. Hopefully they'll get a conviction and then they can stop him from running. Well, history tells us that um, I would imagine that um, the precedent of Debs clearly shows that any. Um, legal restrictions set up for running for president outside of the constitutional standards would never hold. So I don't think they'll be able to stop uh, Donald Trump. I do think this, that um, going into the midterms, when the Democrats get beaten as bad as they will get beaten, and 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 this is important, in the neoliberal wing of the Republican Party, the 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 Lindsey Grahams and the and the and the Mitch McConnell's neocon neoliberal wing of the Demo of the Republican Party, I think they're gonna take a thumping too. That the attack on Donald Trump will have a significant effect on the Republican Party because a lot of people who may have even sided with that neoliberal wing are going to start circling the wagons around the populist, around the Trump wing. And I think they're actually going to make Donald Trump stronger. And the Trump wing, not just Donald Trump, the Trump wing of the party is going to get a significant um, tailwinds from this act. And speaking of those, uh, Cheney, Liz Cheney, uh, daughter of uh, Dick Cheney, the mass murderer in Iraq and Afghanistan and the man who made billions for his companies uh, out of those wars. Um, she was comprehensively thrashed in a primary by a Trump-supporting Republican opponent. And she's now decided that while she couldn't make it in Wyoming, uh, she can run for president, maybe in double harness, with Mike Pence. How serious is that as a prospect? Um, it makes as much sense as Andrew, Andrew Yang's forward party, you know, a party that has brought together the, um, you know, the, the, the neocons, from the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the pretense that they're, um, that somehow this is something different. So no, I don't think that, um, you know, various versions of neocon and neoliberal uh, politicians, whether it's Andrew Yang's group or whether it's Mike Pence's group, I mean, inside of the Republican Party, they will get 
thrashed. I mean, we saw what happened in 2016 when a bunch of uh, those particular people, the Jeb Bushes, et cetera, when Trump, there was 19 of them and Trump stomped every one of them. So Donald Trump, if he is the candidate or a Trump-like figure, a Trump-esque figure, will wipe the floor with those people. It's again, they're trying to convince themselves, you know, the pundits, if the pundits were joking, were, were all voting, then um, Pence and and and, uh, and Cheney would win in a landslide, but they have no idea what the actual people of America want. They have no clue. And they're trying to tell the American people what they want. And uh, the American people are getting further and further away from them. Garland Nixon, as always, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. This poll is doing great business. And overwhelmingly, people think that such is the economic situation now, not just in Britain, but in other Western countries that we're headed towards, not just the general low-intensity industrial unrest that we currently have amongst one section of the workforce after another, that all the sections of the workforce at the same time are going to come together and withdraw their labor to force a change in government and in government policy. Uh, and overwhelmingly, people can see that coming. Now, our next guest is Angelo Giuliano. He's an Italian who spent the last 27 years in China. He is a substantial uh, political and financial analyst I think this is the first time that we've met. So let me just say, Mr. Giuliano, a very big welcome to the mother of all talk shows. First of all, give us some background. How did an Italian end up in China 27 years ago? Well, uh, George, uh, adventure. Uh, I already predicted the, the race of China. Uh, it was emerging. I had learned that in 79, Deng Xiaoping said... Uh, he was he, he had this policy of opening up and reform of china and he started from a, a small village uh, shenzhen the, the 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 village was 100,000 inhabitants now it's a it's a very uh, very dynamic city of 10 million inhabitants uh, so i i foresaw that and uh, my decisions was to leave my cocoon i was working in the banking industry in switzerland and um, I, I wanted adventure, so I, I went to Taiwan, and I lived in Taiwan 18 months, and I learned Chinese. I started learning Chinese, and so it's been 27 years. I've seen the the changes, all the major changes from Taiwan side to the mainland side. It was it was just amazing. Uh, I came I came to China. I was I had different phases. At the beginning, you know nothing. Then after one year, you think you know something. After 27 years, you become humble. You become humble because it's uh, China is another world. Um, if you want to be uh, objective about China, you need to look at China with Chinese eyes. So this is why we have, uh, there's lots of bias, uh, a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to China, because we, we assume we are looking with the Western eyes and, and it's completely wrong. We need to to start stop to stop to the, this arrogance, which is very imperialistic arrogance. It's the same as when we used to go to uh, South America and then we want to colonize people, and then we were bringing uh, civilization. This is the same we're doing with China. Chinese is its own agenda. It's never been hegemonic. It's focusing on on prosperity of its own people, 
and uh, and actually the CPC has been delivering over the last 40 years. We have 800 million people that were lifted out of poverty. And through the 27 years, I saw the changes. Uh, it is just amazing. It's just amazing. I saw, you know, I, I used to go to villages, uh, uh, in small villages, they were walking bare feet. I'm talking about very, very small villages. Uh, their dreams was to have electricity, to have, you know, just ba basic stuff. Now you go, you go back to China. Uh, your first experience when you land in, in Shanghai, in Pudong Airport, will be like ex an extremely uh, modern airport. Uh, you will take a fast train of 400 kilometers per hour to the center. Uh, and you will see the most modern city. Uh, so, so you see, my frustration now is why am I coming out and, and speaking out is because there's a, there are lots of uh, self-proclaimed experts out there and they, they're picturing a, uh, something about China, which is completely wrong. Uh, and, and I think we need to pay attention to this critical moment. It's this, what we call the Thucydides trap, where you have this emerging power, which is not hegemonic. You know, if, if people were to learn about Chinese history, China has never been hegemonic. China, they used to have the, when Christopher Colombo uh, discovered America, China had a fleet which was probably 20, 30 times bigger than the, the, the second largest, the, the largest fleet in Europe. Uh, what they did was not conquer the world. They started planting stations, trading stations all around uh, 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 Asia, in, in Africa, and, and in India, because they wanted to trade. They were focusing on trading, mutual prosperity. And when you look at the project that China is actually... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Building, like the Belt and Road Initiative, it's, it's very visionary. It's about, they, they, they have ambition not only for China, but for the world. And, and what they want is this multipolar world. Well, actually, where, where you, all the global South will have a voice. It is a, it is a new world. It's very exciting. There's a new world, which is being, being built right now of a, of, of end of imperialistic hegemony of the Western world. And, and we are going to give back dignity to the global South. And, and maybe, maybe we are going to really look at, common prosperity, you know, put the people first.
And, and, and again, you know, it's it's not about slogans. China are not talking about slogans. They're making plans. They have five years plan, 10 years plan, 50 years plans. While when you look at the West, we are planning from one election to another. It's a vicious circle of select of electing and regretting. We need to look at our own problems first. We are actually trying to impose what we we are we self-proclaim ourselves to be the democracy. We are not democracy. This is a, a complete joke. When you ask a Chinese about democracy, they consider themselves to have the 90% of people in China consider them to, to have a good democracy. Now ask the same question in the in the arrogant collective West, any country. You see what my frustration is that we don't even know ourselves, our own system, and we want to try we want to impose and go to to China and, 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 and teach them about their system, which is, by the way, it's a system of meritocracy. It's a system that actually was applied 2000 years ago. What the CPC is doing is it's actually learning from its own history and picking up from all the mistakes that other countries did and, 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 and finding the best model for themselves. Well, in the West, uh, we can change the party, but we cannot change the policies. Uh, in China, you cannot change the party, but you can change the policies. And you were there at the birth of the biggest change of all. Uh, from the uh, period of what we might call uh, late Maoism uh, to early Deng Xiaopingism and this opening up, as you described it. There's a pretty dramatic change in system, in basic policy which we could never have in the West. Our uh, orthodoxy, uh, with which, uh, which is policed vigorously by all means, uh, accepts only different shades of the same economic and foreign policy attitudes, whichever party is in power. You say that absolutely right. We we have a huge deficit of democracy in the West. Actually, if you were to ask average Joe in the West about basic understanding of what it means to have a democracy, uh, people cannot even actually distinguish what is the difference between uh, electing and voting. Uh, just basic basic understanding of democracy. Um, now you you know there are preconditions to have a democracy. Uh, number one, it's it's having a sovereignty. You don't have a sovereignty, you don't have democracy. You should have a biased media. Media should be neutral. You know, they shouldn't be in the hand of a of oligarch. Uh, you should have a certain level of education. You need a stable society to have democracy. If it's unstable, you cannot have a democracy. Maybe you need a a certain level of development. Now China has learned through its own experience and. They, they have a system that they're extremely happy with. Um, I, I think the problem you had, and, and, and actually it's interesting, you, you just mentioned this before, actually the policies change in China. It's interesting, you know, there's a, they have a system in China. You see in the West, we complain and we go in the streets because, because there's a problem. In China, they anticipate that. They have tens of thousands of surveys all year round 
They're looking at what the people need. So they're extremely close to the population. And so there's no problem because when this, they anticipate that problem, they are going to find solutions. The, they are servant of the people. You see, uh, um, the same as policemen. It's, you would never see a policeman beating a person in the street because they're there to serve you. Why would they beat you if they're supposed to serve you? But those are small differences. Then I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that I, I like everything. But again, Chinese are happy with that system. And it's actually, it is bringing tangible things. That's, that's the difference. You see, in the West, we are selling freedom and democracy. I mean, as if we could eat freedom and, and democracy. Uh, China, they're very pragmatic. They look at progress in societies in terms of longevity. Is this system bringing me universal health healthcare? Am I going to live longer? Uh, do I have access to food, education, tangible stuff? In the West, you can die in the streets. You're homeless, but then it's okay. You have the right to vote for, for two people that we selected on the first place. Because you see, those candidates that we won't vote for in the West, they were selected before that. And they're not obeying to who votes for them. They, they, they obey to who is funding them. You know, I used to say the kind of things that you just said 50 years ago. But here's the point. Maybe you've been away too long. It's not just that you can't eat freedom and democracy. It's that the very freedom that we used to sing about is being taken away from us piece by piece, sometimes large piece by piece. So the things that we used to be our shtick, we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of assembly and protest and, and, uh, and uh, freedom to write and say what we like. All of these things are being taken away from us, Angelo. The fact is I'll end up, at the moment I'm speaking to you on all platforms, but there's no guarantee that six weeks from now I'll not be speaking to you only on Telegram. The right to speak, the right to hear alternative points of view is being comprehensively removed from our people in Western countries your former country and mine. No, absolutely. I, I just wish that uh, people were to learn uh, at least history. You see, uh, they, they cherish democracy and what they mentioned, they mentioned the, the French Revolution. Do people know about the French Revolution? You know, the people that actually went into the street, they went because not because of democracy. They went into the street because of they wanted bread. It was the price of bread that was, was too high. And ultimately, they were pawns. They were used by the bourgeoisie, the coming rich, the new elites, because they wanted they they, they wanted to share the power with the king, take uh, take away the power from the king. So you see, basic understanding of history, people just don't have it. They have an understanding that actually comes from Hollywood, you know. So so my frustration is uh is all those because I have a first experience in in uh attempt of color revolution, especially I was in Hong Kong in 2019. I've seen people coming in the streets, you know, manipulated. They were financed by National Endowment for Democracy. They were, they were like, they wanted freedom, democracy, and so on. And, and, and it's just, 
it's just a manipulation. You see, we 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 have idealized all democracies, which are actually a, a system of to divide, to better control people. The more you are, you make uh, give the impression to people that there are two camps that are antagonizing each other, the more you give them the illusion of democracy. This is why you see people in in the U.S., for example, they vote they they fighting against racist BLM. Um, uh, abortion, you know, societal things, you know, easy to divide people. But at the end of the day, they it's, it's just a system of control because ultimately, you know what? Is it going to change anything if it's Democrats or Republicans? Those people are laughing. They're laughing because they see two sides being be fighting each other and they're laughing. And what the U.S. is applying internally, they're applying to Taiwan, they're applying that to Ukraine. You see, they, they are fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. If not enough, they are going to fight Russia to the last European. What are, are they going to do in, in Taiwan? They're going to fight China to the last Taiwanese, if not enough, to the last Japanese. And, and ultimately, it's going to be a containment, actually. It's just, you know, so this is a, a divide and conquer. And, and, and what saddens me is that People just don't learn from history. Again, if they were to learn just the World War II, if, if people were just to learn about World War II, how did it happen? How Hitler came to power? Who did finance Hitler at the beginning? Who transferred the technology for him to have that army, so powerful army? Who was that? People don't remember that 20,000 people in Madison Square, they, they had Nazi symbols and they were, they, they, they were pro-Hitler. The U.S. before World War II was before, first of all, was anti-communist. We propped up Hitler. And then when Hitler was about to win, we, we, we started financing Lenden disagreement with USSR. You see, this is a repeating history. We're making again the same mistake and we're being fooled. And they're applying. What are they applying now with Ukraine? The same. Lend disagreement. What are they going to apply to Taiwan? Same. And ultimately, the U.S., what did they do? World War II. They came in the war at the end when everything was over. They didn't suffer the war. World War II was all uh, Europe destroyed, Asia destroyed. And the U.S. came, came up with 75% of world GDP. They had fee, over 50% of gold reserves after World War II. You see, they're hoping to replicate what they did in World War II. And ultimately, what they do after the war, you, you, can, you come in and you, you, you do nice movies and you're going to brainwash people. For 50, 60 years, we were the one that liberated uh, uh, the world from Nazis. It is not true. Russia did it. Russia did it. And again, what frustrates me now more than ever is that we are funding Nazis in Ukraine against the people that actually saved us from Nazis. It's disgusting. You know, I wish yep. I, wish I um, didn't have to uh, do uh, what, uh, what I'm doing now because it's not making my life better. And, and I know, I, and, and I have huge respect. You are an inspiration, George. But I don't, you know, I'm, you. I, I wish I had a normal life. It's frustrating me. I'm doing this, coming to your show, because journalists are not doing their job. 
And because I'm inspired by what you do, George, if you weren't there, who would do that? So, but, but it's, you know, again, you know, we have a voice, but you know, they are going to show, you know, they are, they, they're going to make it legal. You know, it's one thing that they, are, they, are, they, they cut us from social media and they do that, you know, they have, they manipulate algorithm and so on. But ultimately, very soon, they are going to put us in jail for that. Yeah, well, uh, Julian Assange is already, of course, in jail. The criminals have made it a crime to report on the crimes they commit. That's the Alice in Wonderland that we are now in. Just in saying goodnight to you, let me uh, recall my late and great friend, the best prime minister we never had, the late Mr. Anthony Wedgwood Ben, once asked the legendary Chinese foreign minister Zhou Enlai in the 1970s what he thought the lasting impact of the French Revolution had been. And Zhou Enlai took a long drag on his cigarette and answered, it's far too early to say. So China plays a long game. Angelo, thank you very much indeed. A delight to meet you and have you on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining us. It's the mother of all talk shows, all right. Uh, let me, uh, oh, Tom in Bournemouth donated seven pounds and asked for me to mention Julian Assange, and I just did by some kismet, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Zook Zookski, as always, donated five pounds. Five pounds, Zook, gives every single week. And Dino Pantelaukas gives $9.99 every week, his weekly contribution to the Fighting Fund from New York. Dino, God bless you, always. Sailing Prepper gives $2. Big love, love your show, keep it up. I will as long as God gives me breath. Uh, Otto Calva gives his usual 30 Norwegian crown. Thank you. One day I'm going to find out what a crown is worth, Otto, but whatever it's worth, I thank you for it. Now we've had an Italian in China. How about an American with a Scottish name? In Moscow, in Russia, it's always important to walk a mile in the other fellow's shoes and to know what it's like out there in the countries that have become a kind of nether world behind a curtain behind which we're never allowed to see and from which we are no longer allowed to hear. Let's hear from one of the brightest American journalists and correspondents of them all, Donald Corter. Donald, thanks for joining us. Uh, a very horrific terrorist attack in Moscow last evening. You may have heard my opening remarks about it, but whether you did or didn't, what is the likely impact of this crime? I want to thank you for having me on your show again. Um, and the first thing I want to say about this is that the victim was actually a personal friend of mine, uh, Daria Dugana. Uh, we uh, were in the same sort of anti-imperialist political circles in Moscow. So when I woke up this morning to uh, hear that she was killed, um, it was really tragic for me, I have to say. Um, the investigative committee did determine that um, that a bomb was put 
under the driver's side of that car, uh, which is uh, why she was killed. Uh, they said that, you know, it was, the, the, the explosion was so bad that the, the, the body was uh, burnt beyond recognition. And uh, a lot of people are saying that because this was um, this vehicle was actually owned by her father, Alexander Dugan, uh, the idea that a lot of people have is that it was actually intended to kill him but just by chance that she got behind the wheel that that night um so yeah basically the the investigative committee has determined that you know someone put a bomb under it uh as as to who actually did that um i think it's pretty clear um that ukrainians did it i mean uh, pro kiev ukrainians but nothing's been confirmed yet so uh, they, of course, will be the uh, number one suspects, but there, there could be others, of course. Uh, the United States has a fifth column in Russia, uh, well-funded uh, well uh, and uh, constantly propagandized for in the West. Might it not have been uh, such Russian dissident elements who committed this crime? I think it's also possible, um, and you're absolutely right. There are fifth column elements in Russia supported by the United States as well. Uh, but at this point, it's really, um, you know, one and the same, uh, unless we're talking about it being carried out specifically uh, consciously by the Ukrainian, um, you know, secret police. That That's also possible. I mean, this isn't the first time that there's been a, a, a sort of terrorist attack on Russian territory since the beginning of Russia's military operation against Ukraine and the, you know, the provision of uh, HIMARS uh, rocket launchers to the Ukrainian military has actually led to the increase uh, to an increase in the amount of Ukrainian missiles falling on Russian territory uh, closer to the Donbass People's Republics. But we also uh, not so long ago saw a, a terrorist attack in Crimea as well, where a, um, a military warehouse was destroyed. It was obvious it was obvious that that was the target, but it also uh, severely damaged a huge amount of uh, residential uh, buildings, residential homes around that. It d destroyed a, uh, a railroad as well as uh, as well as an electrical power station and some power lines connected to that. So um, it could be it could be the act of uh you know the ukrainian secret services or it could be some sort of sabotage sponsored by uh the cia or some united states uh, organization that has uh, sort of similar goals in this respect i mean i wouldn't put past i wouldn't put this past any of them at this point i mean pretty much this open war between russia and ukraine is just as much a proxy war between the united states and russia I wonder if the people in Russia know, uh, half of me hopes that they don't, uh, the hypocritical, only semi-suppressed glee in, in the West, in the public sphere, uh, not explicitly by politicians, but pretty explicitly by, by the commentariat that acts as the echo chamber for political power in the West, that somehow... Uh, this young woman uh, was a legitimate target. This very same kind of people who are still in paroxysm about a terrorist attack on Salman Rushdie just a week or so ago. Some terrorism is good for such people and other terrorism has them clutching their pearls. 
I wonder if the Russian people are fully aware of the depth of this hypocrisy. Well, I think uh, the fact uh, of what we saw after the beginning of the Russian military operation, the fact that um, the fact that the Russian people really uh, stood stood behind their government in the, for the most part. I mean, we saw Vladimir Putin's uh, approval ratings go through the roof, and the anti-special military operation protests were actually like very, very, very small in comparison to what we saw against coronavirus restrictions. Uh, during during the lockdown, which uh, you know w w was not even connected to any sort of uh, rivalry between governments, but we saw the Russian people uh, do that. And as this whole thing has played out, they've seen exactly what you're talking about. Uh, not just the hypocrisy of what terror attacks uh, the U.S. permits and which ones they don't, but also the fact that um, U.S. foreign policy, when it comes to the way it it uh, it acts towards its enemies, the enemies of Washington's foreign policy. It it has a strategy of projecting what Washington, the, the crimes that Washington is actually defending onto the people that are actually trying to stop that crime. Um, I mean, what what we're really talking about here is the fact that Russia began its special military operation. One of the main reasons for that was the denazification of Ukraine. And then all of a sudden we're seeing people all across the Western media saying that uh, Putin is like Hitler, like uh, Russia r is closer to the Third Reich than any other country in the 21st century. We're seeing the the United States basically turn this rhetoric uh, against its enemies of its foreign policy. And I bring up this this uh, idea that Russia is this r completely wrong idea that Russia is a fascist or Nazi country. I bring this up because uh, one of the main one of the main justifications for this hatred, specifically against um, Alexander Dugan and his daughter was the accusation that they were fascists, that they were that they were neo Nazis, which is just not true at all. I mean, as someone who was personal friends with this, uh, with uh, Daria Dugan, uh, I I know for a fact that that's not the case. I mean, they, their um, their Eurasianist ideas are not the same as neo Nazi ideas. But people in the, who watch the Western media all the time, they don't want to hear that, and they are just so easily put onto this bandwagon that. So that that listens to this information without questioning to such a strong degree that they can justify in their heads killing innocent people. Now, apparently, I wasn't myself invited. There was an anti-fascist conference in Moscow today. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Actually, I wasn't invited either. Um, I expected it to be uh, sort of more open, but. The I, I read a little bit about it, uh, and I remember hearing in the news uh, about the fact that they that Russia's for uh, Russia's defense minister uh, Sergei Shaigu said a while ago that they were going to organize something like this, but this kind of looks like um, uh, more of an official event. I think a lot of defense officials from anti-imperialist countries and like the Third World are in attendance and things. Uh, countries that. Uh, officials from countries that really see the rise of fascism on an international scale as something that's actually a problem. Because remember, Russia is constantly putting these um, uh, proposals through the United Nations uh, for uh, basically a blanket condemnation of Nazi ideology and the glorification of fascism. And basically the only two countries that consistently say no to this 
uh, every single year is Ukraine and the United States. There are a lot of abstentions from Western countries, but the vast, the, major the vast majority of countries in the world continue to support this. And because the U.S. can just veto it, you know, it doesn't uh, go through. So, uh, yeah, this, this is, it, it was more of a, a closed meeting, I would say. But um, this, is, this is actually coming just recently. Either that after or you and I are just not anti-fascist enough, Donald. Uh, it's either yeah, one maybe we're or not. the other. Uh, yeah. uh, lastly, uh, uh, tell us uh, about the very, very frightening developments over the last 48 hours. Uh, scores of Russian soldiers going down with what seemed like the symptoms of chemical or even biological attack and the danger... Uh, and a name date has been given by the Russian side, 25th August, uh, of an, an all-out Ukrainian attack on the uh, nuclear power plant. And now, today, the leader of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee declaring that any radiation leak from that power plant will be treated like an Article 5 uh, trigger for a NATO response because it will be held to be uh, a nuclear attack on, uh, on the NATO heartland in Europe. So these are three developments uh, today, last couple of days, that seem to indicate that the, uh, the war has turned even uglier. Right. I, I mean, of course, it's uh, it's really shocking what's going on around there as, uh, you know, despite the International Atomic Energy Agency constantly saying we need to have an immediate cease to the fighting. This is madness. It's putting the uh, the atomic energy station in danger of creating basically another Chernobyl. And uh, we have to understand, you know, obviously it takes two to tango in, in a battle, but it's only the Russian side that has been saying that we should allow the International Atomic Energy Agency to go there and see the atomic station for itself, see who's really putting Europe in danger of another atomic disaster. Because when we hear this rhetoric, um, you know, considering it an Article 5 uh, sort of uh, crazy event, I mean, they're obviously placing the blame on Russia, but this actual... Um, this atomic energy station is under the control of the Russian uh, is is, un, is is in Russian controlled territory, and the the firing positions that are endangering it, that are firing dangerously close to it, are all Ukrainian firing positions. And we even heard this from the local authorities of Zaporozhye, where it's located, uh, that have said that the best way to stop this uh, fighting is to around the atomic energy station is to knock out those firing positions from the Ukrainians that are constantly uh, trying to make a, a provocation. And you know, this uh, is this is also this also goes along with uh, something that the Russian Defense Ministry said earlier in the week that um, that Ukraine is is likely planning a false flag attack that they're going to blame on Russia to do something around the Zaporozhye atomic energy station. So how it's going to end, I mean, unfortunately, uh, I really, I, I have no idea. And uh, it's it's some of the darkest uh, days of this uh, conflict, definitely. 
And now lastly, I, I asked you this the last time we spoke. I ask again just to see if anything has changed. What's it like being an American in Moscow at this time? How do people respond to you? Well, I can answer that question, uh, George, by through through a story that happened to me actually the other day when we were talking about conferences in Moscow concerning uh, the Ministry of Defense. I was sent uh, by Russia Today, where I work as a journalist, to the Moscow Conference on International Security. And there were two cafeterias there. And this is something that happens uh, a lot in in Russia at events where there are a lot of uh, international guests that, of course, the Russian people want them to feel um, you know, welcome and well taken care of. So there were two cafeterias. There was a one for Russians and one for the international guests. And uh, the one for the international guests was basically empty. I thought, ah, I could just go in there, you know, and plus I am a foreigner, you know, I am international. And I went there and the the, the cafeteria workers told me in Russian, of course, like you, you have to go to the Russian one. You, uh, this is for foreigners only. And I spoke to them in Russian. This is the first time my Russian was ever this good that another Russian thought that I was just messing with them. They didn't believe that I was a foreigner when I told them that I was. And they were like, oh, go to the, you know, go to the Russian cafeteria. We have to make sure that the foreigners can use this cafeteria. So basically, my point is that while Russians are getting banned in the West, uh, you know, they're under threat of attack, that embassies are being uh, vandalized here in Russia. None of that's going on. I mean, still the kind of situations that we saw even before the uh, special military operation where, you know, foreigners are treated like gold because Russians want to make a good impression. That's that stuff is still relevant here. So Donald Kortov, thanks as always for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much appreciated, uh, my friend. So we've been around China russia and the united states and now in the final uh, 15 minutes or so it's all your calls george in greece uh, is on the line wants to talk about ukraine and russia go ahead george good evening george uh, can you hear me all right oh clear thank you go ahead okay so uh, a couple of things very fast so what we're looking at now in ukraine has been really uh, in planning since before the fall of the Berlin Wall, okay? So um, the KGB never ceased existing, and it gave, um, it, it, turned into, it turned into the uh, modern Russian Secret Service, the FSB, and many others. And what we're looking at right now in Ukraine has been uh, in the planning uh, since before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, one thing, there was, there is this uh, Russian philosopher that back in the 90s wrote a book called The Russian Geopolitics that called for the total annihilation of the West, especially the United States, specifically culturally and geopolitically, uh, by all means available, covert and uh, uh, overt. So, do you know the name of this philosopher? I think you're about to tell me it was Dugin, are you? Yes, absolutely. It was Alexander Dugin. His, this specific book of his has never been translated into English. So now, what we're looking at right now in Ukraine is exactly this. Russia does not want this uh, uh, conflict to end. That's why they have not advanced into Kiev. That's why they have not entirely occupied uh, the totality of 
of Ukraine uh, by, by this moment right now. So they could have done this very easily. They're only using 10% of their resources, uh, human resources and um, artillery resources so far in this conflict. They could have taken Ukraine like months before, but they have not done this. They want this to go on forever so they can justify the ongoing existing sanctions that have been imposed upon Russia, and Russia uh, is, is, is feeling obligated to respond by cutting off gas supply, cutting off wheat, cutting off fertilizers, cutting off everything from Europe and the rest of the West. So uh, the total economic destruction of the West is, is an ongoing project, and the, uh, the military situation is not going to end um, because sanctions on Russia are needed uh, in order for Russia to justify counter-sanctions sanctions, and totally destroy Western economies. So that's, pla- uh, that's part... Well, look, George, that's all, uh, that's all Greek to me, if you'll uh, forgive the pun, but uh, this is a free space for every point of view, and I'm grateful that you called from Greece in order to make it. Richard is in Wales on the same subject of the car bombing. Go ahead, Richard. Hi, George. Best wishes, my friend. Um, yes, I was uh, travelling in my car today, and I was listening to the, the radio and heard... BBC Radio 4 um, giving a report on the subject. Now, I don't know if my ears tricked me, but um, one of the uh, people giving the report expressed the incident as accidents, as in this accident and previous accidents have happened. And I thought, what? Have I just misheard that? Um, now, I've, I've tried to go back on a BBC iPlayer and try and find the news report. I, I couldn't. Uh, I tried to phone the customer services and see if I could make a complaint, get them to check it. Couldn't get through because of the hours of the day. Unbelievable if this is the case. What do you think? Well, uh, the, uh, it's uh, sadly too believable, uh, Richard. Their attitude to even individual terrorist groups is completely hypocritical. Uh, Opposing Al-Qaeda and ISIS on the streets of Paris and London and at the Berlin Christmas market whilst backing Al-Qaeda and ISIS as long as they do their killing in uh, in Syria, uh, in Damascus. Uh, Opposing uh, the terrorist attack on Salman Rushdie, but uh, supporting implicitly or even explicitly, if you look at Twitter, uh, the terrorist attack that killed that young woman in Moscow yesterday. Their attitude to the blood of, of Yemenis, of Syrians, of Afghans, of Palestinians, of Libyans, uh, their absolute... Uh, equanimity with which they view horrific disasters visited on some people in the world whilst clutching their pearls, rending their garments, gnashing their teeth and wailing to the utmost when similar or even lesser things 
happen to some other people. The blood of some people is more valuable than the blood of others, and one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. That is the lesson that will be drawn from the response to the terror attack uh, on this young woman yesterday. People will say, don't give us this hypocrisy about hatred of terrorism. Terrorism being the use of violence and terror for political purposes. If that's the definition of terrorism, I'm against it everywhere. Whomsoever carries it out. I'm for justice, no matter whom it's for or whom it's against. That's the only moral and principled stand to take on horrific murders like the one that took place yesterday. Otherwise, if you're a hypocrite, well, others will be hypocrites too. They'll say, if you can blow up my daughter, I can blow up yours. You feel me? Thanks, uh, Richard, for that. Ben is in California on the same subject. Go ahead, Ben. George, uh, hear me. Um, Long-time listener, avid consumer. Uh, it means more than I could probably express in this time. Um, I just have to echo the... Um, the really viscerally, you know, sort of like stomach turning. I mean, his daughter, that is exactly and precisely who was targeted here. I recall uh, the earlier months of the of the conflict. I think this this individual was on some um, Indian English language TV. Was very articulate. Could uh, speak to you know the nuances of this conflict more so than being some chest thumping Putinite fascist. And it's. It's unbelievable. It's uh, it's remarkable, but perhaps we should believe it. And I just, I suppose people, you would struggle to make sense of such a thing. But I think within the event itself, there are like tea leaves that could prognosticate the you know future shape of things to come. You know, the tactic of a, a car bombing assassination that seems to be pretty ubiquitous. But in fact, um, this sort of thing, like it, it, it's not so. This is Alexander Dugan. You know, this wasn't a low, you know, some sort of apparatchik or whatever. This, is, I mean, although I would agree that he's mischaracterized in terms of like a very nuanced treatment of his theory, he's a very high profile. So this doesn't just happen, you know, as as a whim or some like you know highly motivated individual. This took a, this. It has to be a state effort. If you read um the cradle. Yeah, right? I agree. Um, yeah, I, I, so I, I there, agree with that. Yeah. There is, um, there's been recent reporting of um, uh, a, quite a chill in relation between the state of Israel. The, you know, the, it, it's, just, it's so hard in today's political climate to feel empowered to speak the truth about certain issues. But the state of Israel and the Russian Federation, there's a fallout. And it's a quite unprecedented um, magnitude. We saw in the last few weeks the uh, Russians launched an Iranian satellite from Kazakhstan at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. So we're seeing, like, interesting things happening. And I would um, point the attention of the viewers back to 2008, when a car bombing assassinated um, the Lebanese um, anti-Israeli fighting militias, uh, top official. I mean, think about the words we have to, you know, the word salads we have to do in the West these days to feel as if we're not saying, you know, some dangerous sort of thing. It's just, while these things are out there, they're horrific, and they ought to be made sense of, they ought to be understood with some methodology to empower and inform viewers as your show attempts to do. In the West, 
our like leeway to speak is constrained and constrained. It's just really, it's just really upsetting. But I wonder if this was, uh, if this was a manifestation of the foremost fascist powers of the West, the state of Israel, the United States and Ukraine taking a uh, covert action against a high profile, um, Russian, or they attempted to hit a profile, high profile Russian. They were willing to, um, see his daughter done away with. What does that say? What could that, you know, portend for international relations to come? Will the Russians continue to hold back? Well, that's, uh, uh, Ben, uh, I I, I cut you short only because of the hour. It was an outstanding call, and I can't do it justice in the time left to me, but you raised some very important uh, points. Uh, In a way, I tried in my monologue to deal with them by posing the rhetorical question over and over again, are there no rules uh, anymore? Are there no laws anymore? Is there no decency? Even the mafia didn't murder people's daughters. Uh, They didn't perform hits on people uh, in their homes, in front of their wives and daughters. The abandonment of such rules is not just stripping further to the bone uh, all hitherto uh, accepted norms in behavior, even in conflict situations, even between enemies. It, of course, invites retaliation and escalation uh, ineluctably, uh, of course. Now, I made the point, I've never read a single word that Alexander Dugin has ever written. I've never heard a single word spoken by him. Until today, I had never seen a photograph of Alexander Dugan. From the mouths of people I respect, I too reject the mischaracterization of his political views as fascism, but I do that only on trust uh, of uh, friends of mine that uh, I have come to Uh, depend upon, like Donald, uh, just a few minutes ago. I do know for a fact that he is not Putin's brain. He is not Putin's right-hand man, Putin's closest ally. He has never even met or spoken to Vladimir Putin. So I know they're lying about that. And therefore, I can pretty safely assume Uh, They are lying uh, about uh, his political philosophy. But what I know from a long life in politics is that when you start murdering other people's children for political purposes, it's a road to doom. It is a road to hell. You open the gates of hell by actions such as the murder of Dugan's daughter in Moscow yesterday. Time for just one last call. Fundamentals is in Southend on Sea in England. Um, and he so wants to talk about the cheerful subject of World War Three. Go ahead, Fundamentals. George, thanks for taking me call. Um, the last time we spoke, I said I was Welcome. a bit anxious about the Ukraine and Russia situation. That's been going on, that hasn't reduced. In fact, that's got worse, as you know. Um, this has been yeah. going on for far too long now. 
and I think it's going to it's now time it's going to spill over. It's getting worse, and I think you know the West is gunning for war. We need a war. We must have a war, and I think there is no other way out of this. There is they are, the West, the CIA, the UK, Ben Wallace, whatever he does part time. I think he worked in a tuck shop. You know these people are psychopaths. You know, they don't care about people like me and you. They oh, have, yeah. don't care about me and you. They just care about power and money. We are heading into a full-scale war with Russia and China if we don't pull our belts up. And I know this, the, 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 the diplomats, the politicians, they want this, George. They want it. You know, they don't care. They don't realise we haven't got an army. The UK has not got an army. It's, it's pathetic what we've got. And what, what we're, Ben Wallace at, at NATO this week he, he, he was, um, you know, mouthing off, saying, oh, yeah, we're going to support Ukraine with more of this, more of that. There was nothing, no talk of supporting Ukraine in diplomacy. There was no talk of offering a peace deal. Let's get down to the table. Let's have a negotiation, see where we can meet. You've got Zelensky there, the war criminal, the most dangerous man in, the, in, in, in Ukraine and in the world at the moment. You know, all those people have died. They didn't need to. All those army boys, they didn't need to die. This was an unjust war. This was pathetic. It's been pathetic all the way along. If we don't... Well, uh, I'll tell you what, that, that, that would have been uh, a call fit to finish the show on. Uh, but I do have to squeeze one more in. Yesterday, I was in the great city of Liverpool uh, attending the nuptials of my good friend Scouser Lar. Liam and his new wife, Kath, and all their family made me and Gayatri and our children so welcome, as indeed the public did on the streets of Liverpool. It's the leaving of Liverpool that grieves me, to uh, a pun uh, and paraphrase. But just when I thought I'd left it, I've got Tony in Liverpool for the last call of the evening. Go ahead, Tony. Good evening, George. Long time no speak. Um... Essentially, we have to accept that Vladimir Putin has succeeded in winning the economic war, which the West started, which the West are now paying the price fully for, and he's also won the um, the special military incursion, shall we say, in in Ukraine. That that is over and done with, um, all by the shouting at the moment, and the idea that NATO will invoke Article Five and all thirty. NATO members plus Japan will all line up to fight Russia is fanciful. We'll be lucky if, well, unlucky, I should say, if there's any more than a handful who will actually get to the starting line, and they will quickly drop out when they come across hypersonic uh, missiles, which are zooming into capital cities all around Europe. So the writing is on the wall. Uh, I think most people, sensible people, know the way the land lies now at the moment. And it is not in the favour of NATO. End of story, whether that's economic or whether that's military. You see the wisdom uh, that uh, is reposed in the great city of Liverpool, which is now under direct rule from the Tory government in Whitehall. As a result of Labour corruption and incompetence and the absolute absence of any Conservatives or liberal democrats in the city of liverpool the people have been left ungoverned uh, and the government have moved commissioners in to liverpool to run it i'm going to be spending more time than normal 
attending to the political situation in Liverpool because the mass of the people there need political leadership and they sure ain't going to get it from the Liverpool Labour Party. Uh, Tony, thank you uh, very much indeed for that call. And remember, the first ever Moat Roadshow is on Monday the 7th of November in Stockport. It is marvellous for me to be back. I hope it is for you. I'll see you on Wednesday for the Galloway Show at 10pm on YouTube. Good night. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.